Amen. Thank you, Evan. Good morning, Grace Hill. I feel like I'm losing my voice a bit, so I got my tea just in case. We'll see. Uh, good to see you. My name's Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Hill Church, and uh, just excited to be uh, back in uh, the go- Gospel of John with you this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open that up to John chapter 6, and we'll be reading from that. Um, we're going to be reading almost all of John chapter 6, and if you've read John chapter 6 before, you know that there's almost... It might be more than 70 verses. So we're not going to read all 70 verses, but different chunks all the way down John chapter 6 this morning. So really good idea is for you to get your Bible open to John 6 and just put it on your lap or get your app to John 6, put it on your lap, keep it open there the entire time, and we'll be referring back and forth. Of course, things will be on the screen, but it's just going to be better if you can kind of look up and down as we work through this. Uh, together. Uh, As you know, we've been in a sermon series called Stories of Belief, and this has been uh, a sermon series where we've been looking at seven different encounters that Jesus has with people in the Gospel of John, and the Gospel of John goes out of the way to describe each of these encounters as a specific sign that Jesus was giving. And so one of the things that we're looking at in these seven stories is what, what sign is Jesus giving and what is Jesus trying to communicate? And some of the questions that Jesus answers through these signs is, who, who is Jesus? What is he about? And why should we believe in Jesus? And that's a really interesting question for us to be thinking about and pondering about. And I hope it's been helpful As we've been going through this, we're in part five, so we're on the fifth sign. But just to ask the question, why do I believe in Jesus? And if you're here today and you do believe in Jesus, I'm just curious. Have you ever sat down and just really considered and asked yourself, why? Why do I believe in Jesus? And maybe if you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, you're still exploring what you believe. Maybe this is just a good opportunity for you to think about why does Why do people believe in Jesus? Why should I consider believing in Jesus? And I think sometimes when we answer that question, I don't think this is our intention, but it's very easy to start to answer that question by talking about all of the things that Jesus does for us. And no doubt, that is a fantastic reason to believe in Jesus, and it's so good to rehearse all of the amazing things that Jesus does for us. But I think, again, unintentionally, it's almost like we can start to defend Jesus like we defend a politician. Well, here are all the things that Jesus has done for me. Here are all the things that he will do for me. Here are all the things that I hope he'll do for me. And, and therefore, because I agree with all those things and because I want all of those things, I believe in him. You know, I think when we look at like politicians who are trying to get your vote, so much of what they do, right, is they promise you things hoping that you want those things. Here's what I'm going to do for you. Here's the change that I'm going to bring. Here are the people that I'm going to take down. Here are all the things that I'm going to do for you. But the problem is we have so much division over politics because so many of us want different things. 
Right, so you've got division because you've got one big group of people that are like, well, no, I want government to do this, and so you have politicians that promise that, and then a whole other group of people say, no, 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 I want government to do this, and so politicians promise that, and then you have all this division because people want different things. And I think when we look at the church, we see similar division. Because different people want different things from Jesus. And so what happens is, just like we support a politician, is we put onto Jesus our expectations of him. We put onto Jesus our context. We put onto Jesus our geopolitical context. We put onto Jesus our desires and our needs and our situations, all of these things. And we want certain things from Jesus. And then all of a sudden we get division in the body of Christ because different people want different things. And so here's what I think we're gonna, here's what's gonna happen today in John chapter six. Is I think Jesus is gonna show us what it really means to follow him. Like what it really means to believe in him. And he's going to challenge us with the implications of that. So John chapter six, I'm just gonna kind of give it away to you from the beginning. The very, what we're gonna read in just a moment is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Right, amazing miracle. He takes bread and fish and he multiplies it like crazy across thousands of people and it's awesome. And at the end of this story, all of the people that he fed are amazed at Jesus and they're trying to follow Jesus and they wanna talk to Jesus and they wanna believe in Jesus and they say true things about Jesus, as we'll see. But then Jesus has a whole conversation with them through John chapter six that we'll look into together this morning. And by the end of John chapter six, the majority of those people leave Jesus. It literally says, this is too hard. I don't want this. And they leave. And so I'm like, well, what happens between verse 15 that we're gonna read in a second where the people are just enamored with Jesus and Verse 67, 68, whatever it is, when Jesus is like, see you later. If that's what it means to believe in you, if that's what it means to follow you, I'm out. And I think it will be a challenge for us today, an encouragement, an exhortation today, and I think a chance for reflection on our own belief in Christ. John chapter six, let's jump in, let's read it. So we're going to work through this chapter together. I'm probably going to move pretty fast because i am got limited time. And then we're going to think about the implications of that. So let's just jump in the beginning. John 6, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read the first 15 verses. It says this, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So we're at Sea of Galilee. He goes to the other side, which would literally mean probably the eastern side near the Golan Heights, which is um, right near the border of Syria. So he went to that side. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. This guy's healing people. 
So he's got a large crowd following him. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And just to give you some perspective, one denarii was one day's wage. So you're talking like almost a whole year's salary is not going to feed this many people, right? Verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Now, most scholars say that count of 5,000 was just the men. So you count women and children, you're probably talking ten to 15,000 people in a field. Verse 11, then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, there's that word sign, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain. By himself. Now, this is a popular story. Many have heard of the feeding of the 5,000, but it's not arbitrary. You know, the point of the sign isn't to just demonstrate Jesus' power. It certainly does that. But there's so much more going on. And I would say the text lets us know that the people who are being fed, these are Jewish people, They knew what was going on. To them, this wasn't an arbitrary sign either. right? If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 18, I'll just read this for you real quick. Don't flip there because I want you to stay in John 6. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. All right, this is Moses giving to Israel instructions on how to live in the promised land before they go in. And Moses says this to them, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen. Verse 18, I will raise up for them, this is God, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so you have to understand that Israel waited and waited and waited for this coming prophet, this coming Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament over and over and over again. They waited and waited and waited. And one of the big things about Jewish tradition in this that you have to understand 
is that it was widely believed that this next prophet, the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, that person would bring manna. Just like God brought manna to feed Israel in the wilderness through Moses, they believed that the next prophet, the sign that would help them to know that this is the next prophet, is he would bring manna also. Which makes perfect sense because in verses 14 and 15, what are the, what's the reaction of the crowd after this miracle? They go, this is indeed the prophet. Here it is. Like, Jesus is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. And they're exactly right. Like, they're on board. They're exactly right, right now, with what is going on. But then verse 15 comes. And in verse 15, right, what does it say? It says that they were about to take Jesus by force to make him king. I don't know how you do that. Like, I'm going to kidnap you, and you're going to be our king. And you're like, I don't know how that works. But Jesus perceived that this is what was going on. And then so he kind of withdraws himself so that they don't do that. So what's, what's going on here? Well, you have to understand that these are Jewish people. We are in Palestine. And basically, Roman, uh, the Roman Empire has occupied the entire region. And so when people, especially during this particular era, thought of the coming prophet, the coming Messiah, right, the king who was going to come and sit on David's throne, right, this is the person that God promised would establish the kingdom of God. And their interpretation of that is this person's going to come establish the kingdom of Israel and this person is going to drive Rome out. This person's going to be our king, our ruler. And so, of course, I mean, we would all do the same thing. We've got this guy who's healing people of their sicknesses, and he just took five loaves of bread and two fish and fed 15,000 people with it, and there was 12 basketfuls left over. Yeah, all of us are going to be like, let's elect that guy into office. Let's let him lead us. He should be the one who's going to lead us. He's the one that's going to establish the kingdom. He's the one that's going to drive Rome out. He's the one that's going to provide for our every needs. And Jesus knew this, that this was their desire, and so he kind of withdraws. So here's the interesting thing about these people. These people were correct on who Jesus is but they were wrong about the implications of that. I think we gotta sit with that for a second because it's very possible to be right about who Jesus is. Yes, I believe Jesus is God. I believe he's the son of God. I believe he's the savior of the world. But we could be wrong about the implications of what it means to actually follow him what the implications are of, of what it means that he would actually be our king. And so there are two types of people who are right about who Jesus is. We see this in our text in John 6, especially as we get into this dialogue between Jesus and the people. There are going to be people who are right about who Jesus is, but they're Thoughts about what it means to follow Jesus is Jesus is there to, to take care of my needs. 
Jesus is there to secure my life. Jesus is there to make my life comfortable so that I can live my life. Right? Jesus is here to take care of all the problems. He's here to take care of my sin. He's here to give me my bread so I can go live my life. Jesus is here to drive Rome out. Let's keep doing the bread multiply thing. That'll work. So I can go live my life how I've envisioned it. That's, that's one kind of person. And the other kind of person is someone who's right about who Jesus is and the implications of that, meaning that they see that Jesus is life itself. That Jesus isn't just here to provide for my needs, but he himself is all that I need. That Jesus isn't here just to set me free to go live my life. No, Jesus is here so that I can live my life for him. And we're going to see this key distinction, this tension in the text. And so the challenge as we jump into these later verses is this. I think John 6 is going to be like a mirror to us this morning where we're going to look into it and we're going to see our reflection. We're going to ask ourselves, well, which one am I? Am I right about who Jesus is, but maybe wrong about the implications of what it means to follow him? John 6 is going to help us look clearly into that mirror. So let's keep going. Right after this episode in verse 15, Jesus withdraws, and everyone's looking for him. And Jesus does the walk on the water thing, which is hilarious, because, uh, I mean, we're not even preaching that part of it, but... And there's a whole implication of that. But what's hilarious about it is Jesus gets to the other side of the lake and all the people find, finally find Jesus. And they were aware of all the boats that were there on the other side of the lake. And they knew of all the boats that went to the other side. And they're like, Jesus, how'd you get to this side of the lake? And he never answers the question, but the answer is he just walked on the water. I just think that's so funny. So anyway, in verse 25, these people find Jesus. Because they're not ready to, to uh, give up on this whole, let's make Jesus king thing. And a whole dialogue ensues. Let's look at verse 25 to 27. So it says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you. He doesn't even answer that question. He just goes right in. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So Jesus is pointing out to them clearly, listen, your desire in seeking me out, it has nothing to do with Deuteronomy 18. It has nothing to do with the fact that I am the one that has come, that has been sent by God. The words of God are on my mouth. I am the one that's going to teach you the things of God. That's not why you're seeking me out. You're not seeking me out as the Messiah. You're seeking me out as the one who gave you bread. 
and you want me to keep doing that. Your, your eyes are set upon earthly, temporary needs and desires. That's what you're seeking. You're not seeking me as Messiah. He just says that straight up. So he says, you need to seek not food that perishes. You need to seek the food that is eternal, that does not perish. So, you know, I think of, just to go back to Deuteronomy for a second, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Hold on, I didn't have it marked in my Bible. And now I got to mark John 6. So there we go. Deuteronomy chapter 8, or uh, verse 3, where it says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What Jesus quotes when he's being tempted by Satan in the desert. And what I find interesting there is in the Old Testament, we, we get this reality that this sign of manna is supposed to be a foreshadow of the Messiah to come. Not because the Messiah is going to give you physical bread to eat, but because he's going to give you spiritual bread to eat. All right, so let's keep going in our text. Jesus is pointing this out. Verse 30, John 6. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so now all of a sudden they're going, okay, Jesus, well, we need a different sign than what you've already given us. All the healings weren't enough to let us know you're the Messiah. And now all this manna thing that you just did, the uh, multiplication of the bread, that's not enough. We need a new sign from you that's going to tell us that you're not just this earthly king that's going to help provide for us, but that you're this one who's going to provide something that's eternal. And essentially, I think what the people were asking for here is bring down bread from heaven that doesn't spoil. Because the manna in Exodus spoiled. And we want to see you bring actual physical bread that doesn't spoil. This is the sign that they are looking for. This is what I need to see in order to follow you. Verse 32, Jesus responds. Jesus then said to him, truly, truly, I say to you. This verse, yeah, 32, 33. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so Jesus, again, he's trying to explain, hey, the manna was a foreshadowing of what the Messiah would provide for you, which is life. And so the people are caught. Jesus is speaking of bread metaphorically. They are still thinking about bread physically. That's what's going on here. So Jesus keeps talking about, hey, no, no, no. The bread from heaven, from God, 
is eternal because it's literally, it's me. It's, I have the words of life. I'm here to save your life. Following me will bring you life. So he's talking about himself as bread. And the people are still caught on physical bread. Verse 34, they respond to Jesus. Sir, give us this bread. Always. They're asking for it. Okay, where is it? Like, make it appear, the bread that does not spoil. And so Jesus says, the famous verse, verse 35 and 36, Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. You're right about who I am as the coming and uh, prophesied Messiah and prophet, but you're wrong on the implications of what it means that I am the bread of life. So what does it mean? There's so much metaphors going on here. What does that mean? Where's the disconnect? Go to verse 48. Again, we're just keep working through John 6. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So what Jesus is saying here is he saying, I have come to give my flesh. And my flesh is what's gonna save your life. It's what's going to give you eternal life. Because I'm gonna give of myself, my body on the cross as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins. And through my flesh, your judgment is wiped away and you are given eternal life but I also am bringing you my words. And in my words, I'm gonna nourish you. I am your bread. I'm the bread of life. And in following my words and in believing in my words, then your life is nourished. I'm here to save you and I'm here to walk with you through life. And so there's this whole dialogue going on in John 6 about this. And we're gonna get practical with it in just a second. But let me just show you After all of this dialogue, in verse 66, it says this. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus explains, I'm not here just to meet your earthly desires and needs. I am here to save your life through my flesh, and I am here so that you will follow me into life. I am the bread. And it says that many heard this message and said, I don't want it. I don't want a king. I don't want a Messiah whom I have to follow. I want a king and I want a Messiah that will meet my needs so that I can go live my life the way I want. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, by the way, distinction here between disciples in verse 66 and the 12 in verse 67. 
So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Are you going to leave me? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Beginning of John 6, everyone's enamored with Jesus. Make that guy king. End of John 6, most leave him. Most say, I don't want this. And this is where our text, I think, becomes a mirror to us this morning. And as we look into it, we have to ask our quest- this question, what do I see? What does this text say about me? Is it possible that, yes, I'm right in who Jesus is, King, Lord, Savior, but maybe I'm wrong about the implications of that in my life? So this is going to be the unpopular saying of the day. To follow Jesus, to to take the bread of life that Jesus says that he is and to consume it and eat it and to, to live off of it, to let Jesus be your life means you have to lay your you have to lay yours down. You have to lay down your philosophy of life. Now, I have thoughts how life works, and then we have Jesus, who is the words of life, and he himself is life, and we say, okay, I'm gonna lay that down and follow what Jesus says. I have to lay down my views of truth. Because Jesus is the bread of life. He is life itself, so I lay that down, and I follow what he says about truth. I have to... I have to lay down my vision, dreams, and goals in my life. Because the text is saying that Jesus himself is life. Oh, and how easy is it to have this vision for my life, and then Jesus can provide some convenient needs for me so that I can go live my vision for life and What it means that Jesus is life itself, that life and joy and purpose is found in Jesus is to to lay that down and go, okay, Jesus, I want to follow your vision for my life. That's a hard saying. I mean, that's the point, like even right there where so many, even in our culture, say, I liked the multiply the loaves, Jesus, but I struggle with that Jesus. I struggle with him actually being king and Lord of my life. I've shared my story many times here. I know what I'm about to share. I've shared several times, and, and many of you um, have heard it before, but because it's my testimony, it's, I mean, it's a part of my testimony, I, I, I just can't help but think about that in my life as I study this and apply this to my own life. When I was in high school, I was one of the captains of my football team, and that's all I wanted to do was play football. And uh, all my friends were getting recruited to these big 
you know, universities, and I didn't get recruited, I didn't get to play. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to go the coaching route. And so I really wanted to be a coach, and I really wanted to coach strength and conditioning. I just loved it. And I'm a very driven person, as many of you know, and so I just kind of went after it as hard as I could, like networking and trying to get appointments with people and trying to figure out how I could, like, start this. And I, I landed myself um, kind of in a crazy way, a, a job working at the University of Maryland, helping coach in their strength and conditioning department of their football team. A job that you needed a bachelor's degree for, and I didn't have one yet. So I worked there, and it was great. I, I thought I excelled. I did really well. And then through these crazy kind of all these events, I, I met this guy at a Starbucks that led to some networking that ended up me getting an offer to work for the then Washington Redskins. And that, a job that you needed a master's degree for, and I still didn't have a bachelor's. And so I'm looking at all of this, and I'm like, my vision for my life is set. This vision, let me just kind of paint the picture for you, right? I mean, it, it looks like wealth, you know? Uh, I mean, getting to work in the NFL early, there's a lot of money in that business. So, okay, it looked like, all right, this is going to be a lucrative opportunity for me. I'm going to make a lot of money. And then as I had this vision for my life, also that like I had a job that was cool, you know, like a job that you'd be the guy that if you like went to a party or you're talking to people, oh, what do you do? Oh, I work for the, the NFL team in town. I mean, most people are like, oh, cool. Like, let's talk about that for a while. Uh, and my vision for my life was I had a fun job, making a lot of money, doing something that I love to do. That was my vision. And in that season of my life, before that job started, God called me into ministry. And that is a very, like, that's a different long story, but it's one where he did it very clearly. And I knew I'd lay it all down, like all of it. And, and step into a job, a vocation, that it certainly wasn't going to lead to wealth. That wasn't going to happen anymore. And I had to step into a job and a vocation. Just to be honest, that for most people in our context here in Northern Virginia, it's like really weird. Like, when people ask me what I do, uh, it can be a fantastic opportunity to share my faith, and sometimes that happens, but most of the time, it's really awkward. You know what I mean? Because people ask, hey, what do you do? And I say, I'm a pastor, and they're like, oh, all right, cool. And they just <laughs> walk away. And after that happening over and over and over again, you begin to feel the loss of that a bit. And so... I'm in this spot where my vision for my life got completely laid down. But as I walk into what Jesus had for me, as I walk into the life that he called me into, that required laying down something that was a great opportunity, that made perfect sense financially and professionally, all of that, right? To lay that down and walk into what Jesus had for me. One of the things that I've learned is that he is able not only to meet your needs, but satisfy your soul in ways the world and the earthly bread could never, ever do. He taught me that his vision is better. So I just want you to look at this. If you go to, back to verses 1 to 15, if we look at this story of Jesus multiplying the bread 
and the fish across 15,000 people. There's some amazing details in this story that just tell us about the character of Jesus if you will feast upon him. If you will say, yes, I'm not gonna trust my vision for my life. I'm gonna trust his vision for my life. I want you to see what these details show us. It's really helpful to be observant as you read the Bible. I'm not gonna read all 15 verses again, but I want you to see these four things. I love how in verse five, Jesus saw their need and met it. We have a king who knows exactly what you need, and he sees it. And as we follow him, and maybe even follow him into hard things, he will meet our every need. I've experienced Jesus doing that. He has met every one of my needs. I love in verse 11, it says that they ate as much as they wanted. It didn't say they ate as much as they needed. I love this. I love that as Jesus fed these people, he didn't do it just enough to make sure they were okay for the night. It was abundance. Have your fill, eat as much as you want. And I want you to know that Jesus is committed to the satisfaction of your soul, not just meeting your bare needs. That as you step into his vision for your life and follow him for what that means, that he's after joy in your soul. Now, everyone loves donuts, right? Exactly. Thanks, Chase. Everyone loves it. But you know if you got a dozen of Krispy Kremes that are hot now, and you ate all dozen of those, like the first two or three would be really good. But if you ate all dozen of those, you'd be feeling pretty bad pretty quick. You'd have a sugar rush going. Your body would get all inflamed. Your joints would probably start hurting. Right, that much sugar? No, 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 your body can't handle that. That's bad for you, even though it tastes really good. And we're so convinced that the sugar of the world all around us is so much better for our soul than what Jesus is gonna step us into. That that vision that I have for my life, that's what I want. That's gonna taste really good. And guess what? When you put it in your mouth, it will taste good at first. But it won't satisfy your soul like the bread of life. I love that. Verse nine, the other thing I love, I love the details, how Jesus takes this little boy who has the five loaves of barley bread and the two fish. Now, barley bread was the poor man's bread. It was the bread that the poor people ate. The rich people didn't eat that kind of bread. And so what I love is that here, Jesus uses the most unexpected person and multiplies what he has for the good of others. A little boy with barely nothing and poor man's bread, and he feeds 15,000 people. And as you step into the very thing that Jesus is calling you into, you have no idea how Jesus is gonna use the very little things that you have for his kingdom purposes. One of the things we say around here at Grace Hill all the time is we believe in mustard seed-sized ministry. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts really small, but we have no idea how God will expand that. And I love how Jesus will use what you offer him as you step in to following him 
in a huge and amazing ways. Last thing, verse 13, I just love how there's abundance, 12 basketfuls left over. There's more bread left over than they started with. There is no lack in the kingdom of God. There is no lack. It will never run out. There will be nothing that is lost as we follow Jesus. I need you to know that. It is scary to lay down your life and step into following Jesus, following his words, his truth, his morality, following what he has called you into. It is scary to lay down your vision of the world and stepping into Jesus' vision of the world, but nothing will be lost. You have nothing to lose. And so the question we just have to wrestle with this morning is, right, do we trust that Jesus is a good king and that he's worth feasting upon? He's worth committing my life to. He's worth following. Do we trust him in these things? Or do we see Jesus as someone who will meet my basic needs so I can go off and live my life how I want? Jesus doesn't give us that option in this text. There's no such thing as following Jesus a little bit. So what I want to do this morning is I want to give us some time to reflect. The band, you guys can come up if you want. We have communion before us. And as you see in scriptures, you read from cover to cover, bread is this metaphor that's used over and over and over again to remind us that Jesus is the bread of life. He is life itself. And we take communion because it's a way for us to remember that Jesus offered his body to us on the cross. As we break the bread, we remember how the body of Christ was broken so that we could be saved. As we drink the juice, we remember how Jesus, his blood was shed on the cross to forgive us of our sins. And as we do this, we're reminded that he is life itself. Communion is not about Jesus making our, meeting our basic needs so that we can go off and do what we want to do. It's a reminder that he is life itself. There is no life apart from Christ. So I want to call us to this morning is just to take a few moments and I'm done. I'll pray and take a few moments and just reflect. As you look into the mirror of John chapter 6, what do you see? What crowd are you a part of? The 12 disciples that say, Jesus, where else would we go? You have the words of life. Or the majority of the people who said, no, I don't want this. And they leave. We might be right on who Jesus is, but wrong about its implications. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're still exploring. I just want to say this. Sometimes you can look upon the church and you can see some things that you don't like at all. There's a lot and a lot and a lot of people in the church, and sometimes I'm one of them, okay? Not perfect in this, that are right about who Jesus is, but we're not right about the implications, and we don't live it out how Jesus called us to live it out. So I encourage you, don't explore Jesus just based off what you see other Christians doing. Hang with us and explore what it really means to follow Jesus based off what he says here. And we'd love to walk with you through that journey as you explore who Jesus really is. So let me pray. 
I just want to invite us into a time of reflection. And as you come to the table, I just want you to be reminded that Jesus is himself the bread of life. Nothing will be lost if you lay your life down so that you can live the life that Jesus will bring you. Let's pray. God, I'm just so grateful for the words of John 6. They are hard words. And Lord, they were hard to many that were speaking to you that day, evidenced by the fact that they left you. Jesus, I'm thankful you give us hard words that are true. I'm thankful that you don't make us guess on what it means to follow you. So Lord, I pray that we would be challenged this morning, that your spirit would do the work of conviction. Not because you're overbearing, but because you're inviting us into something so much better. Help us to see that the life that you want to invite us into is so much better than the life that we could imagine. Jesus, we're thankful for the cross. We're thankful that you went to the cross and your body was broken and your blood was shed so that we could have life eternally that does not perish. As we come forward and we take of the bread and the juice, pray that your Holy Spirit would assure our souls that you have us, that you've forgiven us, and that you're leading us into a life that's so much more abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. Pray these things in Jesus' name.